0: Of art and ideas, articles, videos,
1: and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.
0: The perception of reality changes parallel to the movements in the history of mathematics.
1: In this week's episode, author and philosopher Sylvia Jonas breaks down the changing relationship between mathematics and philosophy.
0: This mathematical ideal does not only shape our perception of physical reality but it also shapes the way in which we understand and conceptualize other very fundamental areas of our lives i'm going to speak um, soon about these different areas ethics religion metaphysics etc
1: so how has mathematics informed the history of philosophical thought how valuable is mathematical logic And how seriously should we entertain the concept of mathematical pluralism?
0: Mathematics has become a benchmark for all other areas of discourse that have a claim to objectivity. And in that sense, mathematics has become very interesting to philosophers as a model for other non-empirical domains.
1: If you like what you hear, let us know on Facebook or Twitter at IAI underscore TV or leave a review on iTunes. And if you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas, head over to our website, iai.tv. And if you enjoy our podcast, you might also enjoy Philosophy Talk, a radio show, podcast, and online community created by our friends at Stanford University. Check it out at philosophytalk.org. Now back to Sylvia Jonas for this week's talk.
0: And the basic question I'm asking myself is, How does mathematics shape our conceptualization of reality? Now, you might think, well, in some sense, there is a really trivial answer to this. And this is because mathematical methods are actually everywhere, especially in the empirical sciences. For example, in physics, um, physical theories couldn't be formulated without the use of mathematics. But also in other uh, natural sciences, for example, in biology, we use mathematical models in order to study the behavior of uh, certain, um, well, patterns of organisms. And in sociology, we use mathematics in order to study social networks. So in that sense, mathematical methods are everywhere in the empirical sciences. And because the empirical sciences shape the way we see reality, well, naturally, mathematics has a part in that as well. And this is because it is an indispensable scientific tool. But this is not what I'm interested in in my research. I'm more interested in mathematics as a philosophical paradigm. And in order to give you an idea of what that means, I'm going to um, introduce five examples from the history of philosophy to you. So the first one, of course, is Plato, who considered mathematical knowledge the highest form of knowledge. Uh, And in fact, Tradition has it that he had the sentence, let no one ignorant of geometry enter here, engraved on top of the entrance to his academy. So he thought that proficiency in mathematics was a prerequisite for the acquisition of any further knowledge whatsoever. Galileo um, had a slightly different view. He believed that that mathematics was the language of the book of nature. And he thought that it was the scientist's task to become proficient in that language and thereby study the fundamental structures of reality. Also Kant had a very special place in his philosophy for mathematics. So he thought that mathematics is a prime example for a particular class of human judgments, judgments he called uh, judgments synthetic a priori. And those are judgments that are on the one hand we form without consulting our experience beforehand, but on the other hand, they're not empty judgments like analytical judgments, but we actually get to learn something new in those judgments. And he thought that mathematics was the prime example of synthetic a priori judgments and that we could learn how these judgments work in different contexts. Also, Nietzsche believed that uh, mathematics actually is a paradigm of refinement and rigor. And he uh, thought that all other sciences should strive to be as much as possible like mathematics in that respect. And then finally, and perhaps most bizarrely, and so this is why it's my favorite uh, example, Georg Cantor, probably one of the most important mathematicians of all time, at least I think so, um, who proved that there are infinities of different sizes, Um, So there is the infinity of the natural numbers. And he proved with an actually with a very straightforward and simple proof that um, the set of real numbers is larger than the set of natural numbers, even though both are infinitely large. And so he he called these number these sizes of infinities transfinite numbers and the idea of an absolute infinite he thought was a manifestation of God. So Cantor actually found something divine in mathematics. In order to give you a a slightly better picture of what fascinates me about this, I'm going to say a few words about the relationship between mathematics and the empirical sciences and how this relationship has evolved over time. And again, I'm going to start in ancient Greece. And so for the ancient Greeks, I'm talking now about Plato, the Pythagoreans, and most most of all, of course, Euclid, um, mathematics was above all. It was where the it was the only source of true knowledge, uh, of absolutely certain knowledge. Whereas our beliefs about the empirical world were considered to be mere opinions. Why? Because the empirical world is constantly in flux, it's constantly changing. And so he thought, well, it's impossible to have certain knowledge about something that is ever changing. So what we see here is that mathematics is the sort of a kind of knowledge above all and the empirical world is something we can have opinions about but not really know anything about. A very, very distinct separation between the two realms. Now, this picture changed dramatically during the times of the scientific revolution many centuries later when empirical sciences really started to blossom and the exploration of the empirical world started to become more and more systematic. So now we've arrived at a picture where Mathematics, as I mentioned earlier, was considered the language of the book of nature. And the task of the scientist was considered to, uh, well, learn the language and figure out the, the basic laws according to which the universe is structured. And these laws were thought to be mathematical laws. So by putting mathematical laws in relation to our observations, um, we the scientist was supposed to understand... The fundamental truths of reality. This picture changed again uh, in the 19th century, the time we now call empiricism. So during that time, um, the fortunes of mathematics were completely reversed again. The empiricists, for example, of the Vienna circle believed that mathematics actually didn't have any content of its own. It's a mere tool, a very useful tool for the empirical sciences, but a mere tool nevertheless. And the only source of certain well-grounded knowledge was considered to be uh, the empirical sciences. So as you have noticed, we have sort of this movement where mathematics started off as being this highest form of knowledge, then it sort of merged with the empirical sciences, and then the empirical sciences became our paradigm of well-grounded knowledge, and mathematics was considered to be a mere tool for, uh, for the sciences. Another way of saying saying this is that mathematics um, started off as something that could be called the language of God. Actually, the ancient Greeks believed that um, the reason that we find sort of imperfect geometrical figures in the empirical world is because the gods gave um, geometry to the world, sort of instilled geometrical language in nature in order to... ...make us understand that uh, this nature is an intelligible, uh, uh, an environment um, that is intelligible to us. During the scientific revolution, then, mathematics became the language of nature... ...and during empiricist times, it had become or taken a fall down to uh, the level of a mere language of man. And what we see here, what I want to point out to you, is a continuous dissociation of mathematics... From the physical world. And the crossover point that I mentioned earlier coincides roughly with the rise of pure mathematics. So, in the 19th century, mathematical concepts that had little or even no physical meaning whatsoever started to be introduced by mathematicians as legitimate objects of mathematical study. For example, n dimensional spaces, uh, transfinite numbers non-Euclidean geometries, complex numbers, all these mathematical objects that didn't have any clear physical meaning anymore. And so mathematics, in that sense, moved beyond concepts that were suggested directly by our experience of physical reality. And so at the beginning of the 20th century, the situation was as follows. I'm going to quote Morris Klein here, perhaps the most important or the most well-known Historian of mathematics, he writes it very nicely. The circle within which mathematical studies appeared to be enclosed at the beginning of the 19th century, that circle being applicability to the physical world, was broken at all points and mathematics exploded into a hundred branches, each one built on its own system of axioms. So that's actually a very vivid picture of what happened to mathematics. It exploded into these all these different subfields. And people working in these different subfields wouldn't necessarily talk much to people working in other mathematical subfields. And of course, you're probably expecting this. There was yet another paradigm change. In the the first half of the 20th century, set theory, um, one branch of mathematics, uh, uh, all of a sudden acquired a lot of importance. And this was because a group of French mathematicians they were working under the, under the sort of pen name uh, Bourbaki group, started to prove that set theory is actually a foundation for all of mathematics. They showed that um, we can express all mathematical theorems in the language of set theory, which, of course, made visible the interconnections between all these different branches of mathematics. It also helped precisify certain concepts that had hitherto been slightly vague or unclear, Um, It made visible the fundamental assumptions that were being made in all the different branches of mathematics. And most importantly, it provided a unified framework, a unified language in which all the different branches of mathematics could be interpreted. And just as a sort of piece of terminology, the standard um, axiom system for set theory that is uh, used most of the time is called ZFC stands for uh, zermelo frankel set theory with the axiom of choice. I just threw this in here in case you want to read up on this at some point. Uh, This is a piece of terminology that comes up quite a lot. Set theory created a foundation for all mathematics, but it did more than that. It created an autonomous mathematical paradise. This is not my expression. This is David Hilbert's expression, um, another very important and famous mathematician. And as such, as this freestanding paradise, this freestanding mathematical realm, it became a perfect model for other domains, at least from the point of view of the philosopher. So just to summarize this again, to make the movement visible in the beginning, uh, well, the beginning here is ancient Greece, ultimate reality is where mathematics is in the platonic heaven of eternal forms. During the times of the scientific revolution, the ultimate truths Uh, of reality are out there in nature, are actually hidden in nature. During the time of uh, the empiricists, mathematics has become nothing but a mere tool. And the only reality we have is this physical reality. And well, now the point we have is uh, at the point where we are, mathematical and empirical reality sort of coexist. They exist independently of one another Of course, they intersect in the area of applied mathematics, but there is a very large part of mathematics, pure mathematics, that exists uh, and operates independently of what's happening in the physical world. So what I want to point out to you is that the perception of reality changes parallel to the movements in the history of mathematics. Now, as I just pointed out to you, this mathematical ideal does not only shape our perception of physical reality, but it also shapes the way in which we understand and conceptualize other very fundamental areas of our lives. I'm going to speak um, soon about these different areas, ethics, religion, metaphysics, etc. But before that, I want to say I want to just um, summarize what the mathematical what the properties of this mathematical ideal are. First of all, It is an ideal because mathematical truths are arguably indisputably certain. Mathematical knowledge gives us 100% certainty. Mathematical statements have objective and determinate truth values. So what we have here is an ideal of a unified, contradiction-free whole, um, as it were, if you want to put it slightly metaphorically, the idea of one unified, beautiful truth. And so in that sense, mathematics has become a benchmark for all other areas of discourse that have a claim to objectivity. And in that sense, mathematics has become very interesting to philosophers as a model for other non-empirical domains. And of course, what philosophers try to achieve is, for example, people working in ethics, they try to show that their domain is as similar as possible to mathematics because that generates Credibility. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses, and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports, and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news, and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe, and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So, okay, how does that actually work? I said that philosophers think that they can uh, draw interesting inferences from comparing mathematics to these other domains, ethics, logic, Metaphysics, religion even. And you might think, well, what do these domains have in common with one another? Well, look at the statements of these domains. For example, in maths, we have statements like two plus two equals four. In ethics, a statement like, torturing babies for fun is wrong. In logic, a statement like, if P and if, if P then Q, then Q, modus ponens. In metaphysics, we say stuff like, There could be purple pigs. And uh, in religion, we say things like, well, if you're religious, God created the universe. In terms of their actual content, these statements don't have anything in common, of course. They talk about very, very different things. But from a philosophical point of view, they are related. And the reason is that, first of all, they make reference to non-empirical entities, by which I mean... Um, entities that are beyond the grasp of empirical investigation. So, for example, numbers, um, values or norms, reasons, moral properties, propositions, possible worlds, all these things are things we cannot investigate with our traditional means of empirical science. And so I, I, I dare to say that many of us think that these sentences, in addition to referring to weird entities, are true, are objectively true. Perhaps not the last one, that's debatable, but uh, certainly many of us would intuitively at least say that these statements are true. So that's a different way of saying that many of us are realists about these domains. Now, what does that mean to be a realist? First of all, it means that we're in some sense committed to their being non-empirical entities, like numbers, for example, or moral entities, like values, etc. It also means that we believe in statements in those domains having objective truth values. It means that we believe that the truths of those domains are not reducible to truths about something else. So, for example, it means that ethical truths are not really truths about something empirical, but rather truths about a specifically ethical subject matter. And finally, we believe that these truths are actually knowable, that it is possible for us to get to know mathematical, ethical, metaphysical truths, etc. So if you're a realist about these domains, um, and if you're committed to at least some of these claims, then you're also going to face a number of challenges. For example, you're going to have to justify your ontological commitment to these weird entities. You have to give us some positive reason why we should believe in the existence of these entities. You would also have to explain how come that people actually disagree quite radically, especially in uh, about morality, about religious stuff. Um, there seems to be a lot of disagreement out there, and we have to find some reason um, to explain that, uh, some way to explain that. You would also have to um, f- uh, come up with an answer to objections from dispensability. So, for example, in the case of morality, how come that um, our best scientific theories don't make reference to objective moral entities, but rather explain our having moral beliefs in terms of evolutionary benefits, etc. And finally, you would have to give me a story about epistemic access. If there are these truths out there that are about these non-empirical entities, how can we access these truths? Well, certainly not with, our, with one of our five senses, right? Because we're not talking about spatiotemporal objects. So there must be a different way. So I've just listed a number of uh, problems that realists about these different, different domains face. And now the remarkable thing is that these problems are exactly the same no matter which of the domains we're talking about. But in the case of mathematics, even though these problems have not been answered fully yet, nobody really cares. Nobody would question the validity of mathematics because of the fact that mathematics cannot answer these questions. However, for realism about other domains, these problems are sometimes considered decisive. And this is where philosophers try to use mathematics in order for their positions, in order to argue for their positions. So imagine that you are a moral realist. You want to argue something like well, there are actual moral truths out there that we can get to know in some way. And when I say that doing X, Y, Z is wrong, I'm not just expressing an emotion, I'm actually uttering a moral truth. So if you want to argue for this, then it might actually be very helpful for you to make a reference to mathematics. Now, how does that work? I'm going to give you one quick example. Um, I'm going to use only quotes so you can see that these are These are, this is an actual debate going on by actual people. So um, moral anti-realists would say stuff like this. This is a quote by Mackie, a very famous one. Radical differences between first order moral judgments make it difficult to treat those judgments as apprehensions of objective truths. So we have all this disagreement about moral stuff. Therefore, it's really hard to think that there is objective moral stuff out there. Brian Leiter then um, supports the point and argues that persistent disagreement on foundational questions distinguishes moral theory from inquiry in the sciences and mathematics. Here, they even try to draw this contrast between um, disagreement being a big deal in, in morality but pretty much non-existent in mathematics. Leiter then draws the, the conclusion that disagreement about a moral matter X is best explained by there not being any objective fact of the matter about X. Okay, that's pretty bad for moral realism. Now. If you are a moral realist, what would you do? You would probably go back to mathematics and check what the situation is really like, right? So this is what Justin Clark Doan has recently done. He points out that, indeed, for core claims in every area of mathematics, from set theory to analysis to arithmetic, there are some who deny those claims. So what he's been doing, he's been looking at mathematical Uh, Discourse, and he's actually shown us that there is significant fundamental disagreement in mathematics. And of course, he then goes on to argue that that actually supports the case of moral realism. And you can see how this might go on. This was just one tiny example, but you can see how that sort of reasoning uh, could help us in our reasoning about all these different non empirical domains and all these different. Issues that arise in these domains, issues about ontology, semantics, questions of irreducibility, knowability, etc. I want to raise one question, sort of a wrap-up question for this talk. And that question is whether mathematics is really this ideal. And I'm going to read you another quote that I really love. Uh, It's by Geoffrey Hellman and John Bell, two mathematicians. Contrary to the popular misconception of mathematics as a cut-and-dried body of universally agreed-on truths and methods, as soon as one examines the foundations of mathematics, one encounters divergences of viewpoints and failures of communication that can easily remind one of religious schismatic controversy. So what they're actually pointing out is that mathematicians do disagree radically and passionately about uh, number of things, most notably about questions of mathematical foundations. Now this brings us back to the situation I sketched earlier. You remember set theory being the foundation for all of mathematics and offering us this beautiful picture of this wonderful unified mathematical reality to which all other domains uh, aim to match up. Very recently, um, a very prominent um, philosopher of logic, has made the following suggestion, and this is actually not something that is super new. It's been going on for a long time, but what happens in the mathematical community, it takes a while until it filters down into the philosophical community. It might be that mathematics is actually a fundamentally pluralistic realm. This is an illustration by Joel Hamkins, the famous logician I was referring to earlier. He suggests in a paper from 2012 that the set theoretic universe... I was speaking about earlier is, in fact, a set theoretic multiverse. A multiverse uh, in which we have many different concepts of set to which correspond many different set theoretic universes. And what makes this interesting is that we have no uniquely correct answer to all mathematical questions. And what he suggests in his paper is that what we need to do, when I say we, of course, he means mathematicians, is to simply accept this fact, to stop chasing after the uniquely right answer to certain open questions in specifically set theory in the foundations of mathematics, to accept the fact that we cannot answer all these questions uniquely, um, that our intuitions are not sufficient in order to zero in in onto one intended structure of mathematics, and that that's just it. And so the thought I would like to end this talk with is how will pluralist mathematics shape our conceptualization of reality in the future? So I'm very interested in following up on this paradigm shift we see in mathematics happening at the moment. And if you think back to um, what I just explained about how mathematics has actually shaped so many of the areas of of our lives, the fact that mathematics, allegedly the most certain, um, the most absolute of our sciences, is going radically pluralistic, what does that mean for all these different other domains? And I think it's, um, it's an interesting question. I think we could do with a lot more pluralism in other domains as well. And I hope you enjoyed my talk.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. It was hosted by me, Catherine Flay, and our guest speaker this week was Sylvia Jonas. For more discussion on mathematics and philosophy, try our debates. There's the edge of reality, which asks whether we are mistaking mathematical metaphors for truth. There's also the end of all things, in which Nancy Cartwright discusses what reality is made of. You can find both on our website, iai.tv. Leave a comment and review if you enjoyed today's talk. And tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.